0: Recorded. This is the Red Ticket Blues Podcast. I am Brian Buckley. This is being recorded on February 24th to hit the internets on February 25th, 2016. How are you, you, and you? How's everybody doing? Remember, you can always listen to the show on iTunes, TuneIn Radio, Stitcher, YouTube, and follow me on Twitter at Brian Buck13 and at Red Ticket Blues. It is another edition of the weekly Thursday talk. And this week, I'm lucky enough to who have had Mr. Chad Finn, a sports media columnist for the Boston Globe and for Boston.com. We go all around the great city of Boston, get a feel for the sports scene, what's going on there right now, teams, sports radio, things like that, you know, jump into the Celtics, prepare for the Red Sox, all of that, get to know Chad a little bit. So I'm I'm rambling. Let's listen to the he is the sports media columnist for the Boston Globe and Boston.com. That, of course, is Chad Finn. Chad, welcome to the Red Ticket Blues podcast.
1: Hey, thanks for having me on,
0: man. No problem whatsoever. Chad, let's let's jump right into this. I was reading an article the other day in, uh, I believe it was The Cauldron, about how Boston is not embracing the Celtics the way a 33-25 and 25 upstart lovable team should be embraced. You're in Boston. You're writing about these things. Is that an accurate angle, or are we reaching there?
1: Uh, yeah, I saw that story, too, and I skipped it after reading the headlines because <laughs> I knew that guy couldn't possibly uh, know what he was talking about. I mean, um, that, that's either well, that's either not knowing what you're talking about or that's next-level trolling, you know, because yeah. uh, I think people have really embraced the Celtics team and, uh, in a couple of different ways. I think they've been realistic about uh, what the expectation is for this season and that they're uh, uh, probably not uh, going to hang Banner 18 anytime soon, but. Um, they are, uh, you know, they are uh, a very fun team to watch. They're trending in the right direction. And I, I think fans, uh, at least the reasonable ones, after the trade deadline looked at this and uh, said, you know, they traded Paul Pierce and Kevin Garnett and a couple other parts, you know, Jason Terry to the Nets, got all those picks back just a couple of years ago. And here we are uh, since then. They've hired Brad Stevens, which is a brilliant move in its own right. Uh, trade for Isaiah Thomas for basically nothing. Uh, got Jay Crowder in the Rondo deal, who ended up being the best player in the trade. Uh, drafted Marcus Smart, who's kind of a tone setter. Just had a lot of things really work out well, and uh, really shrewd moves by Danny Ainge. And uh, they've turned things around and pointed them the right way uh, in a very short period of time. And the most important thing about all that is the best is yet to come because they have all those Nets picks. So I think if you're a Celtics fan, you are watching because they're really fun to watch. And you're also really optimistic because uh, they've got a lot of assets on the roster right now and certainly coming with those New Jersey picks the next three years. Yeah. You mentioned. The Brooklyn th- picks. The next
0: three yeah, years. Well, same team. We, we get it. Uh, um, <laughs> even people in the area still call them New Jersey. It's okay. Um, ex- expectations for this team. Like you mentioned before, I mean, I think they were with the mid to high 40 win range, but so far it looks like they're, they're probably going to exceed those. Um, and next year and the years to come, they, they they need a superstar, and you recently wrote about the guy or even guys the Celtics need to take aim. But for that one guy, please tell us why your guy in Atlanta is worth that max contract for the Celtics.
1: Yeah, you know I'm not sure he is. I, <laughs> I love the help Horford. Uh, he he's uh, but he's 30 years old. He's he will be 30 years old. He's got a history of shoulder injuries. Um, But he's a perfect fit. He really is a perfect fit. He's hit more threes this year than he made up his entire career uh, until the season. So he's expanded his game that way. His rebounds are down a little bit. He's averaging about 70 games this year. His career high was around 10, almost 11. Uh, So he's slipped in some regard. And he's, he's certainly not a perfect player. But he's a really, really good player who would be absolutely perfect on this team with what they need and what they try to do. Uh, I would pay him. I'd love to see him here. I know it's going to take like $140 million. He's looking for a max deal, and there's certainly some risk there. But I think if you get Al Horford here, uh, this team gets even better than it is now. You mentioned their one loss record at this point. You know, they, they could win 50 games. They'll win in the upper 40s 50 games maybe if they uh, really play well from here on out. Uh, you add a player like Horford to that, and suddenly this is a place where people are looking at it and saying, wow, that team plays hard. They have fun together. Uh, they've won a couple playoff series, hopefully. And Brad Stevens is a guy who puts all of his players in position to succeed. He plays with their strengths. He's got that candy knack for that. I want to go play for that team, and uh, I think that is almost inevitable with a with a, a really talented free agent type of player. If uh, if you can get a guy like Horford in here to be that first uh, quasi superstar uh, to, to, to to join up here with what they already have going.
0: Yeah, that, that Horford, again, like you said, he's 30 years old, and it is kind of risky seeing that the the uh, salary yep. cra- salary cap rises next year, too. So you're really going to be giving a lot of money to a guy who's got some miles on him. Um, he does. One final thing on the Celtics, and that is, you also mentioned this, the bevy of draft picks from the gift that keeps on giving those, those aforementioned nets. Um, ben Simmons sits there, the jewel of the draft. Now, is mm-hmm. this front office going to be crushed if they don't end up with Simmons and then have to deal with an international question mark like Dragon Bender or a guy still growing into his body like Duke's Brandon Ingram?
1: Uh, no, I don't think they'd be crushed. I think they would be mildly disappointed, but if they land in the top three, I think they'd be pretty happy. Uh, Ingram's a the guy. He's had some hiccups recently, but before this recent stretch, he's played really, really well and uh, you can see the ability that he has. He's, he's so skinny. I mean, he, he's skinnier than Durant was as a freshman in Texas, and he was a uh, rail-thin himself. Uh, he's got some weight to put on. He's yeah. probably not going to be anything close to a finished product early, but he, he the, the talent's undeniable. Uh, we've all seen Simmons. Hopefully, you uh, taking some time to see him because he's a really fun player to watch, but he can't shoot a lick. I don't know how much he's going to help uh, uh, at the beginning either. I think if you're one of those fans who – uh, has heard his name, but hasn't uh, really watched, uh, made the effort to watch him play. Maybe expectations for what he's going to be next year are unrealistic. He's going to help a team, but he's got ways he needs to grow his game as well. Uh, and Bender, you know, nobody's seen him, but uh, he's not playing a whole lot for uh, his EuroLeague team right now. But that doesn't really mean anything. Uh, he's 7-footer. He's got perimeter skills. He's someone he's is very familiar with, and I think they would be happy to have any of those players. Of course, Simmons. Is a prize everybody wants, and uh, Celtics will certainly do some lottery luck. But they ended up in the top three as one of those guys. I think they'd feel really good about it.
0: Yeah, Sim- Simmons is the name, but watching I've I've seen I've seen a lot of them. He th- there are he can't shoot. The defense isn't there. Uh, he he completely disappeared against Oklahoma uh, a few uh, about a month ago or so. But I'm also sitting here ripping this guy when in five years it's going to look absolutely stupid that I'm ripping him for a few games his freshman year at LSU. <laughs> Uh, and I love Brandon Ingram, too. He's got the muscle tone of about Reggie Miller at this point, but I think once it all matter, once it all comes together, he, he's gonna be he's gonna be something very special. Um, now let's get into you, Mr. Finn. you You grew up in Maine, so I'm assuming you're a fan of the local sports uh, scene in Boston. am I correct? Yes, sir. And I'm sorry to date you here, but you were in high school <laughs> in 1986, one of the greatest years in Boston sports history.
1: I, let see, what year was I graduated in 88, so I would have been a, a sophomore, yes. okay. yeah. That was a wonderful year in Boston sports, and I vaguely remember it.
0: <laughs> well, let's see if you can remember this. Set the scene for us, if you can do this. Did you did you think with ever, all, the, all the success going on, did you think that, hey, this is pretty cool. I, I, I bet this is going to happen every year.
1: Uh, back then, no. You know, <laughs> I, I didn't, uh, because, I, you know, I, when you're young, you feel like... Uh, Every year feels like five years in a sense. You know, your life is so short at that point that uh, something happens in one year and it feels just like it has enormous magnitude. And so uh, my first year in baseball was uh, 1970. You know, Sox. Well, you know, we know what happened then. And uh, I took that pretty hard. So I, I kind of had the uh, sense that maybe things weren't going to Uh, always work out for the hometown teams, it's not so bad. And, you know, that was the year where Chuck Fairbanks bailed out on a really good Patriots team. And uh, Celtics were kind of in transition then. That's when they drafted Bird. But, of course, he had done one more year at Indiana State. So uh, there was always uh, sort of something going on there that made you say, well, maybe this isn't the year. And that cynicism gets built into you pretty quickly around here, at least it did then. Uh, so by '86, when it looked like they were going to win the World Series and the Patriots won the Super Bowl and Celtics had the best game of all time, uh, you really enjoyed it and savored it. Even if I, you know, I was only 16 years old, I, I felt like I had a lifetime of disappointment already, which is just totally ridiculous. But it, it, it's how it felt. Um, so you know, it, it was a wonderful year, and uh, I don't know if you expected it to happen every year. Just kind of hoped uh, that uh, they'd get a couple championships out of it. And as it turned out, they got one and. Uh, uh, Celtics team we still talk about all the time.
0: Absolutely, uh, one, of, one of one of the all-time great teams. In, indulging in all this 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 at a young age was the aspiration to be a sports writer. Did was 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 that it right there, or did it just sort of happen along the way?
1: Uh, yeah, that was right around the time. I mean, I had the uh, I had the dream. Uh, every other kid of playing, you know, you know name the position in the team. But it was for most of us was probably left field at Fenway, following you know Williams, Jazz, Rice, and. Uh, the guy come up then was Mike Greenwell, who looked pretty good early in his career. Uh, sort of faded out when it was Will Cordero and Troy O'Leary and guys like that later on. But uh, uh, you, every New England kid who loves sports has a dream of playing for the hometown team. And uh, I realized uh, pretty early that that wasn't going to happen, you know, when you, you go your first year in a little league and you only get one hit. And that sort of thing. or <laughs> the best kid in town, you automatically assume that he's going to be a pro player. And then you realize that... Uh, uh, you know, your Bay Blue League team can't win a game in the state tournament, and you live in Maine, and you haven't even played uh, Massachusetts or California, or however, the, the magnitude of uh, of uh, what it takes to be a pro athlete, uh, you realize that pretty young, I think, uh, hopefully you realize it pretty young, and so I always knew I wanted to be around sports, I love sports, and uh, my dad uh, is a huge sports fan, and he used to bring home the Globe and the Herald oh. every day, and you know, he'd try to give me the Herald, and I'd try to—I'd uh, be cool with that. He always wrote the Globe first, and so it was kind of my, uh, kind of my dream uh, after I realized I wasn't going to play to cover sports and be around sports. And uh, fortunately, that uh, that has worked out pretty well because uh, you know it is what I always wanted to do.
0: You know that that, gla- that Globe that your father was always uh, grabbing first. You started working there in 2003 after nine years at the Concord Monitor in New Hampshire. Um, how did this? Now, your current position is sports media columnist. How did that position come about? How did it make its way to you?
1: Yeah, i um, sports media columnist at the Globe, and uh, I write the, a sports column at boston.com, so I kind of split it up. Um, I, was, uh, I worked in Concord for nine years, and we had uh, just some amazing people come through there. I, a few of the people I worked with have gone on to win Pulitzer's. Uh, my editor is actually the guy, I think he's the head of Pulitzer board now, and uh, a bunch of my Globe colleagues worked there, Bob Holer, Fluto Shinzawa, Eric Moskowitz, so it was a really cool place to work right out of college, there's so many inspiring, talented people around, and great editors, um, so that was uh, that was great, I, I was a layout person and a copy editor there, and uh, about five years into it, I started writing, I realized we were kind of lacking in Patriots coverage, and uh, basically, our, our columnist wasn't really into it, and we didn't cover the teams as beats. So I figured, you know, I could write about why Ty Law is having a great season every once in a while, or something like that. And uh, kind of caught on, and so I started writing new columns about more things. And um, as time passed, uh, I realized how much I liked that and had some success with it. And uh, but my dream was always to come down to Boston, and a uh, position opened up at the goal but it was. Uh, it was a, on the copy desk and it was full-time temporary, which meant they could get rid of me at any time. Uh, but I figured it was a risk worth taking. And it was, you know, it's was probably dumb at the time. I mean, I just, uh, just been married and uh, my wife was pregnant, but it, it was a lot more money and it was a place I always dreamed to work. And I felt like maybe if uh, I got my foot in the door, they would realize I was worth keeping around. So, um, that's how it worked out. And I came here and worked on the copy desk and, uh, 2003, December 2003, and lo and behold, in 2004, the uh, the Red Sox won the World Series, and I I didn't have an outlet to write about what I always wanted to write about, and it kind of drove me nuts. Um, so I started a blog, and I started independently of the Globe, and uh, it was touching all the bases. A blogspot.com is still out there in some schedule or form right now. Uh, and, uh, I had, I built up enough of a readership with that that, uh, when, uh, the internet sort of exploded and all of these, um, outlets around Boston started popping up Comcast Sports, and that hired a bunch of people, WEI, added a website, uh, all these things happened, uh, they looked at me and said, hey, this guy has a blog, um, maybe we should move him over to the online side, and so that's what we did, and I started writing there uh, in 2009, and uh, right around that time, the media column opened up, and I would written something uh, at the very same point about uh, uh, I wrote that it was really critical and didn't even mean-spirited about WEI, but I meant it at the time, <laughs> that uh, if another radio station rose up in the Boston market, they would be in trouble. Uh, they would have very real competition. Um, and so I wrote that, and uh, it ended up being uh, sort of prescient, in a way. Um, later that year, I think it was August of that year, the Sports Hub launched in Boston. And uh, within a few months, they were right there with the EI, and even had suppressed them in the ratings. And uh, when that happened, uh, I had written that online for a little publication we had online. Uh, my boss said you know what that was pretty uh, pretty good uh, maybe maybe we should put this in the newspaper and so that's how it worked out they ended, ended up making me the the sports media columnist. they made me write a couple as a tryout and liked them uh, one of them was on jack edwards and mm-hmm. uh something else and they, they decided that uh, i was worthy of doing it so i've been doing it for uh, six years ever since
0: that's great that the blog is highly acclaimed has won uh several awards and um you, it, it's it's funny to hear you say that you know you were working for and obviously it, it's time sensitive, but you were working for a New England newspaper that didn't have enough uh, Patriots coverage and uh, didn't have enough NFL coverage, which is hard to believe at at, at a time like where you know NFL is the sport. Um, yeah, it's it's it, it's hard to fathom. I and I swear to everyone listening, I did not send my show notes to Chad. But the next thing I say here is. You know, I had Adam Kaufman of WBZ and the Sports Hub on the podcast a few months ago, and he mentioned that he wouldn't be shocked if Boston could handle three competing stations, uh, radio stations, that is. What is it about a relatively small city that could drive that much opinion on the airwaves?
1: Well, it's a ridiculous amount of success is what it is. Um, there, uh, There's always something to talk about. How many, what is it, eight championships since two, 2001, eight right? One for something. One for the Bruins, uh, three for the Sox, and, and four for the Pats at nine now. Yeah. And uh, uh, you, you, we were Loserville. Jerry Kelly and Ted Boston is, is Loserville because it's been so long since we had won one. You know, there the, was the uh, um, the uh, parades were uh, the reception at City Hall for Ray Bork after he won was uh, the Avalanche. So it was just uh, that we had to cling to that because it was really nothing else. And it had been so long. It had been since, what, the uh, 86 Celtics. So, um, you know, it, uh, the the fact that the teams are in, in competition uh, for a title virtually every year or in some form of transition where they're either coming off winning a championship or competing for a championship or uh, trying to get back there again, you know, like the transition we talked about the Celtics going through uh, after uh, the KG Pierce, uh, Ray Allen years to where they are now, that's fascinating stuff. And uh, so that sort of spurs a... a easy conversation. I mean, You've had Belichick and Brady for 15 years. That never ceases to be interesting. The Red Sox won in 2004. They won with a, a different team in uh, 2007, and they won with a different team again uh, unexpectedly in 2013. So there's always something to talk about, uh, and that has really fed the peace on both stations. I don't know if three. I think that would be pushing it, and I think there would be uh, there would be trouble if uh, the teams fell off and suddenly you had, uh, you know, four teams performing like the Bruins are this year—they're just sort of mediocre and uh, aggravating. And uh, so, I, I think it's really the success of the teams that's, uh, that's really driven and pushed a lot of this. And uh, uh, the, the sports radio stations have really, really benefited from it. It'd
0: be interesting to see if, if you know, because at a certain point, it, there probably will be some mediocrity to see what. How, how sports radio in Boston goes. I mean, I listen to a lot of sports radio in Boston and in New York, and, uh, you know, most of New York is a little rough right now other than the Mets. Uh, so yeah. it could be uh, could be somewhat of a future for, for Boston at some point. Um, I just want to touch on this real quick, and, and I listen to Boston sports radio. I'm still constantly hearing about the Patriots and Deflategate. Um, right. Is giving back the first-round pick for the Patriots the only way to move on completely, or is this always going to be a topic for as long as Roger Goodell – is the commissioner.
1: Well, it's going to be for a while longer, you know, because it's not over. Brady's got yep. to deal with the, the NFL's appeal here now coming up in March. Uh, it's it's really ridiculous. If you think uh, how long ago this all started up and, and why it started up. I mean, it's just crazy that this story is elongated uh, to over a year now. I mean, popping up after the FC championship game before they won the Super Bowl to, to being uh, uh, this, it, it's, it's, just add to the absurdity of the whole thing. But uh, uh, yeah, it's gonna be something we talk about for a long time. I mean they're losing those picks, so we'll be talking about it in April for the draft. Uh, if a player goes uh in that range after the Patriots would have picked in the uh you know, oh, low thirties yeah. to maybe uh, you know, thirty five, thirty eight and ends up being a, a real cornerstone player for somebody, well you're gonna remember that. You can remember, wow, maybe Belichick would have drafted that guy. Mm-hmm. You know, we always play that game, so uh, it is uh, it is something that's going to be out there for a long time, unfortunately.
0: Yeah. Uh, the biggest headline outside of Deflategate this year in Boston was was probably the, the, the unceremonious departure of Red Sox TV play-by-play guy and fan favorite Don Marcillo. Now, did, ne- did Nesson have any idea the fan backlash would be as brutal as it was?
1: No, I don't think they did. I think they're completely taken aback at the, uh, and that was sort of the root of everything that's happened there. Um, they're taken aback by his, his popularity, uh, especially, uh, in terms of, uh, I don't know. I don't know how to classify the people, but it seemed to me it was an older demographic who really liked Don and Jerry that they continued, considered them, uh, sort of their companions. that. Uh, they were on their TV and thus in their living room every night. And so he felt like you knew these guys. And Don was such a such a pleasant guy. I mean, so uh, goofy. He sort of felt like, you know, your your favorite nephew if you're an older person or somebody like that. Uh, uh, and people really liked that. And he did a good job. I think there was a real strong consensus that he did it his job and had gotten better at it over the years. and become a really good play-by-play broadcaster and engaging one. And so... Uh, when he lost his job for no apparent reason other than the fact that they wanted to make a change, that, that, that made people mad. I mean, you can relate to that. You yeah. do a good job. You work hard in your job. And uh, somebody takes it away just because they can, you're going to be mad. And so that was another element to it. Uh, and, you know, one of the strange things to me about Brian was uh, Dave O'Brien's been here for nine years and uh, been on the radio broadcast. And I heard from a lot of people who just weren't familiar with him, which surprised me. Uh, but then yeah, I started getting the emails, and they, they would be uh, it'd be from a 75 year old woman in Cranston, Rhode Island, who's never going to watch Nesson again because uh, they like Gone so much, and then you know 68 year old guy from Brockton who uh, really enjoyed them and and uh, had heard them call so many games through this great stretch of Red Sox history, and how could it ever be the same again? And who this Dave O'Brien guy? I think he's he well, he's he's been here for a long time. He's really really good at his job, and as it turned out, you know, Nessen did him no favors by, uh, by the way they handled this. It was their prerogative to make a, make a move. You can make an argument. They've got a better guy in there. I mean, he's a tremendous broadcaster who, uh, has a, you know, long pedigree, what he's done for the Red Sox, what he's done for ESPN. Uh, he's worked for the Mets and the, and the Braves and the, it was the inaugural Marlins broadcast. He's got a really great career and he's from here. Uh, he's one of us and yet, uh, None of this was emphasized when they made the change. Oh, it's no, not at all. Oh, my God, uh, people are really mad. They're really mad about Orsillo. And
0: I think, felt, you know, like, not uh, to interrupt you, those probably those same fans were probably upset and said the same things when Sean McDonough left and was replaced by Don Orsillo.
1: Yeah, probably. It's true, except it, it's, a, it, it's a much greater element of it now because the Red Sox are, you know, they're not as big as they've ever been. That was pro- that peak was probably post-2004, but... uh they're bigger than they were then when Sean McDonnell left in 2001, for sure, and uh, that uh, that certainly did affect people.
0: Um, I'll say this: this is how good the the, the Remy and Orsillo were. I full confession: I'm a Yankee fan, but whenever the Yankees and Red Sox play, I, I watch. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I know you didn't want to want to do this podcast. Now, all right, thanks, Chad, for being on. All right, we're done. Um, no. Uh, Whenever the Yankees play the Red Sox, I put the Red Sox broadcast on. I I love listening to those guys. Absolutely. Every single time. And my wife loves it because she's a Red Sox fan. So we can sit there and watch the game in peace and happiness. Well, that's how you have a good marriage. Yeah, absolutely. That's how you do it. Um, Yeah, I think it was absolutely terrible what they did to Don. I thought he was great at what he did. And uh, I think he'll he'll make a lot of people happy in uh, San Diego and hopefully can draw a lot of interest there. Uh, Transitioning from the booth to the field. There, there are two pictures making the rounds on Twitter. You, you wrote about one of them. The first is the Davids hugging it out bearing the hatchet and Pablo Sandoval's just enormity. Uh, you, you wrote today uh, maybe maybe um, you know it, it's not about his, 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 his weight. Maybe it's about his diminishing the player using the uh, chicken or the egg theory. Uh, can tell us a little bit about that? I mean, the, the Red Sox say they're, they're not concerned whatsoever or it's not that big of a deal. John Henry's own body mass weighed out today. Um, tell me a little bit about what maybe you said today that maybe weight has nothing to do with it and it's just the player itself.
1: Yeah, I mean, you, you, uh, you can make a connection with it for sure uh, at the uh, you can say he's probably declining faster than he would if he were in great condition. Uh, you can say that uh, he's damaging his body by being out of shape, and um, that, that's going to lead us to a steeper, faster, earlier decline. All those things would make sense. Uh, but to me, they shouldn't have signed him even if he was the most fit guy in the world, uh, You know, if he's just your universe, because uh, the reality is he had fallen for three straight seasons with the Giants. I mean, his peak year was 2009. It was a monster season. Uh, he was, a, what, in the second year then, I believe. He had a great, great season in 2011 as well. Uh, but since then, he's slipped a little bit every year. And uh, sort of, some of that was masked, I think, by the Giants' postseason success. And his in success, he he was brilliant in 2012 and just as good in 2014 when they won the World Series. But uh, the much greater sample size over the full seasons was that he was a player who was in decline. and. Uh, it kind of shocked me. He was somebody Ben Charrington would be interested in because you know, they're very analytic. Uh, they tended to catch guys on the uh, aim to catch guys on the upswing of their careers. Was the mistake they made with Rick Porcello last year, was they thought they were catching a pitcher going into his prime. Sandovall didn't strike me as a guy that, that Charrington would target. I think what happened, and this is uh, my educated hunch on this, is uh, they had a black hole at third base. They, they Will Middlebrooks, they knew he wasn't going to make it. Garen Caccini had uh, stalled out at AAA. He was a good prospect. And so uh, management, I, Tom Werner, John Henry, I suspect Tom Werner because he's got an ties, uh, came into it and said, you know, this guy will be really popular here, like El Guapo. Uh, <laughs> they're going to love him. He, he, he's chubby, and he was just awesome in the World Series. And Sherrington looked at it and said, yeah, but his OPS has fallen off three straight years, but you know what? It's going to be better than what we have. And if it makes Tom happy and it's his, uh, John's money, sure why not and so they signed him and uh, what they caught was a guy who didn't really uh start well and that got him off to a bad start with the boston fans and he's a sensitive guy so uh, that had a negative effect and then uh the fact that he declined three years in a row he declined for a fourth year in a row and it was a steeper decline than he had had in any of the previous seasons and so you're looking at a 29 year old uh overweight third baseman now who no matter what his physical conditioning is, you have a, a long, uh, pretty pronounced track record now of him uh, not playing well, playing a little bit worse each season. And so I don't know that it's realistic to expect him to bounce back this year, no matter whether uh, uh, he's got 17% body fat or he's uh, he's uh, uh, overweight for uh, what a professional athlete should be.
0: But he's decreased from 20% from last year. That's what John Henry told us. That's a good thing. Uh,
1: hey. uh, he doesn't pass the eye test on that, though, does he? <laughs>
0: He certainly doesn't. Uh, yeah, I mean, Chubby and winning in San Francisco, that's cute. Uh, chubby and losing in Boston, it's, it's not so much. I, I, well, if he
1: was good, you know, if you were getting 2011 Pablo Sandoval, he'd be beloved here because he he could hit and he was a good third baseman and he uh, uh, you know, we know everybody knows how much people liked Rich Garces when he was yes. there. Because oh, yeah, Not only was he uh, he, he out of shape, uh, jovial, out of shape guy, but he was a great relief pitcher, yeah. great setup guy for a couple of seasons. And uh, Sandoval just—he was terrible last year. And when you're terrible, it's really easy to look at the physical and conditioning and say that's the reason.
0: I, I personally hate farewell tours, and like I said, I'm a Yankee fan. I was nauseated by Derek Jeter's probably by the middle of April. Uh, that's still going. Yeah, I, I think it is. is. I think he's going to get some gifts tonight, actually. Um, minor league okay. stadium somewhere in Tampa. But David Ortiz will get his this year. Uh, do you think it's possible? Maybe I think um, there's probably other people that think this, too. But it's possible that if he rakes and dominates the world, do we get to see two tours of goodbyes from Poppy? Does he come back? Because, I mean, Jeter was a shell of anything. Ortiz is still a great player.
1: Yeah, you know, Jeter, as great as he was, he probably hung around for a year Wait too long. I mean, you can never fault anybody. Why do you want to go, yeah. you know? But, uh, uh, and he, he had as decorated a career as anybody, so it's, it's probably particularly hard to say goodbye. But um, sometimes the time comes, and uh, it came for Jeter. Ortiz is a really interesting case because uh, you look at the numbers, and he, he really shouldn't be good this year, but he was great last year. Yeah. You know, he's 40 years old uh 37 homers last year. The record for home runs by a 40-year-old is 34 by Daryl Evans, and then it falls off steeply after that. Uh, if, which, logically, if Ortiz has 25 homers this year, it's a good season, but I think the expectation is he's going to hit more than that just to do so good last year. And the Red Sox are kind of counting on him to, to, to do that too. So uh, there are a lot of variables in this farewell tour because this isn't uh, one last hurrah like it. Sort of was for Chiga, where you knew he wasn't the player he used to be. This is a guy the Red Sox are so counting on in the middle of their order, and uh, he's had some slow starts in the past. He had one last year, so this could turn a couple of different ways depending on uh, how he looks in really going and whether he's the guy that people are still expecting him to. There's a lot of weight on his shoulders, so yeah.
0: You think uh, you think he gets that uh, wanted uh, standing ovation at Yankee Stadium this year?
1: I think so. You know, how Yankee fans are. It's the same same way here. Uh, right. They they appreciate greatness and they also like to be able to say that they appreciate greatness. Right. You know, kind of Red Sox fans the same way, where yeah, we're classy, that kind of thing. So, um, yeah, I think he does. I mean, he's had some obviously incredible moments against the Yankees, some that sort of turned the tide of the rivalry for a while, and certainly changed Red Sox history. Uh, I think they'll appreciate that and they'll probably cheer him going away as well.
0: So let, let let's look at this team as a whole. 78 and 84 last year, but I have seen eight to one odds to win the world series. There were, there were the big big acquisitions of price and Kimbrell, but maybe, maybe I'm just out of the loop here. I don't, I, what am I not exactly seeing this? Is this lofty prediction justified? I mean, is this team, is it just people getting better, people getting healthy? I mean, what are your thoughts on the predictions for the world series for this, this team? Yeah,
1: I'm a little skeptical, you know, I, the, the big thing, well, they did the two big things. They, they got David Price ahead of the rotation, which they needed. If he stays healthy, uh, that's a few more wins for sure. Um, and they rebuilt the bullpen. They've got power arms out there now Kim Brown, Carson Smith. Uh, hopefully, Koji can handle a thinning and stay healthy, even though he's 41 years old. Uh, he's still very effective last year before he broke his hand. So uh, much better in that regard. But you don't know what the rotation is after Price. That's still a mystery yeah. how those guys are all going to slot in. And the big question to me is uh, if Ortiz falls off, where where does the offense come from? Where I, They had a very good offense last year. I think they finished third in runs. Uh, a lot of that felt like stat padding late in the season when they were out of it. But for a team that had a good lineup last year, uh, you can go almost player to player and uh, have a significant question. Now, Mookie Betts and Dennis Bogarts are, are, are both wonderful young players. They're 23 years old. Two best guys on the Red Sox roster, got brilliant present, brilliant future, all of that. But uh, improvement for young players isn't always a, a, a win here. It doesn't always happen the same increment year to year. And you look at these two guys and you say, uh, if they're as good as they are last year, well, okay, that, that's pretty darn good. But uh, who's going to improve this lineup before Keith falls off at age 40 a little bit? And uh, is it Hanley Ramirez? Who knows? he don't run in the second half. Is it Sandoval? He's fallen off all those years. We don't know what Rizzo Castillo is. We don't know what Jackie Bradley is. We don't know what the starting catch is going to be. Whether Blake Swihart's progress in the second half last year is something that carries over in the season. Uh, does Petrolias stay healthy? It's, uh, it's a lot of talent here. Uh, it was a good run scoring offense last year, but for a team that's expected to really hit the ball, uh, it seems like, uh, they have an awful lot of, uh, question marks and variables in there that could go one way or the other.
0: Okay. So I'm not crazy. All right. Good. Uh, re- <laughs> recently you, <laughs> recently you became a member of the baseball writers of America, meaning you can vote on the hall of fame. Now, uh, it seems. Yeah. Like in eight years I can. Oh, in eight. Oh, you're not, you can't b- vote yet.
1: You got to wait 10. Oh, jeez.
0: Okay. Well, this, this still, still applies. Um, Members right. have loosened their stance on steroid-era guys. My question to you is, would you ever elect a guy, when you have the opportunity, that has admitted using performance-enhancing drugs?
1: Yeah, I would. Uh, I would, um, I, because I, I'm a rational person. I think I have a lot of common sense, and uh, to me there are probably multiple PD users already in the Hall of Fame that we don't know about. I mean, it, it was uh, it was certainly... Uh, widespread in that era, from what early '90s, '93, '94, '95, certainly after the strike, to uh, was the strike no the strike, uh, to uh, the testing, you know, 2005 in that range, um, and I I I I think you really have to be naive to look at the Hall of Fame and look at guys that've been elected the last 20 years and say. He was clean, he was clean, he was clean. Oh, he played age 40, yeah, he was clean. Uh, he had 340 at age 38, definitely didn't do anything. Um, there's a, There are guys in there that, that did stuff, and uh, we just don't know who their names are. Um, I also think there are different levels of it. Uh, you know, uh, there are guys who maybe uh, did certain things, and there are guys who built their entire career around it. Mm-hmm. So it's just a, such a nuanced and tricky thing, and it stinks. My, my personal approach is that it, it's a – It's almost become a cliche, but it's a museum uh, celebrating baseball history, and it feels incomplete to me without guys like Bonds and Clemens. And you need to address what uh, they did. Put it on their plaque. Put a giant asterisk on their hat. Do what you got to do. But uh, I I believe uh, there's a void there without those guys.
0: Alex Rodriguez, what do you think?
1: Well, it's an interesting one. He's rehabbed his image in the span of a year. Best broadcaster Fox Baseball's ever had, and. Uh, had a good season last year, but uh, he, had so, he had so many uh, strikes against him with PED. He's sort of the same thing with Manny Ramirez. He's one of my favorite players I've ever watched, but you know he got nailed multiple times after yeah. testing was implemented. And,
0: it's tough. Uh, A-Rod's
1: guys. sort of been, Yeah, they're in the same boat, and uh, I don't know. I, I think we're going to find out, uh, hopefully find out more information in the time between uh, uh, when they get... when A-Rod's eligible, certainly. Manny's coming up here a little bit sooner, but uh, that maybe uh, clarifies things a little bit. But, I, you know, i go for A-Rod. He's had an incredible wow. career. He's a, I, I think I would. You know, i go back and forth on it, but uh, just a ridiculous career and certainly not a genuine guy. No, not like, at all. Uh, by, any, by any stretch. But, you know, I uh, I think uh, probably there are guys who did some similar things who were in that didn't get caught.
0: Very, very, very interesting. Now, Chad, you you wrote for for Father's Day. You wrote a long form piece about coaching your daughter's basketball team, which which is excellent. It, it was great work, and I recommend it to everyone. Honestly, it's pinned on your Twitter oh, page you. at Globe Chad Finn. No problem. I really sincerely mean that. Now, was this sort of a picture album for you? Because I mean, you mentioned in the beginning the snapshots you forget and everything. Was this was this for you, or or uh, down the road a picture album? And my other question is, has your daughter read this?
1: <laughs> um, it's funny, I you know I it ran on Father's Day, but I started working on it uh, a few months before and just sort of ditched it about halfway through. I was like, um, it was supposed to be more of a piece about actually coaching my daughter's basketball team and the experience of that, and a little more stuff about the kids and and what basketball is like for girls at that age and how important it can be in their lives and, and how important sports are for girls and. Uh, sort of shifted it a little bit. The more I thought about it and the more breathing room I gave it there in that span. And when I uh went back to it I thought, you know, this this probably would work on Father's Day and our season had just ended and I was kind of sentimental about the way it ended. So um it was something I I probably wrote mostly for myself. I just wanted to uh to get it out there because I had so many thoughts and so much uh emotion about about coaching my daughter and her friends at that age and and uh, uh, sort of seeing her turn from a, a little kid who you know, loved pushing me around the yard and kicking the soccer ball off my forehead to uh, uh, you know, being someone who was really finding value in sports and finding confidence from being part of a team and uh, all those just incredible benefits that you get from, from sports, from, from participating in sports and uh, the social aspects and all that stuff and uh, tied into my own personal experiences growing up and loving basketball. So I, I took it in that direction. Um, and, uh, it was more for me just to, to, uh, spill out my own emotions and to write about it while it was fresh in my mind. Uh, but, uh, the side effect was all the moms in town think I'm awesome now, but uh, they all read it. And, uh, one of the girls on the daughter's team came up to me afterwards and said, uh, just out of the blue, some, um, my mom read your story and you made her cry, but I just looked at the pictures and that uh, kind of summed
0: <laughs> Very up. Very honest.
1: You know, they yeah, their point of view on it. But my, my daughter hasn't read it yet. I think she will she's a little bit older. And, right. you know, it'll be a Valentine for her at that point for sure. But, uh, you know, it's still the same experience. My last year coaching her, and we're right in the middle of it right now. And then she goes to middle school, officially middle school next year, and somebody else will be coaching her because I just I, can't, I won't have the time to be able to do it every day. So definitely an emotional time right now. And uh, I'm glad I got that out there last year when I did it.
0: Oh, it, was, it was absolutely excellent, and I want to thank, thank you, thank you no, no problem. I want to thank you, Chad Finn, for being on the Red Ticket Blues podcast, but to play us out, I've got three quick questions for you. You ready? You got it. I know you're a coffee fan. Iced coffee, hot coffee, or both? Iced. Really?
1: Even in uh, February. Yes, sir. Wow.
0: I, I was not expecting that answer. Um, <laughs> okay, that's fair. Uh, is Bill Buckner, in your mind, a Hall of Famer?
1: Uh, just a little bit short, but nobody's ever going to forget him.
0: Yeah, that's, that is true. And finally, who is the nicest athlete you have ever met?
1: Ooh. Wow, that's a good one. I feel like this should be an obvious name that comes up there. and It's just not popping into my head. I'll tell you, here's a recent one. Quick answer. Uh, I, I was talking about my daughter. I took her to the Warriors game when they were in town. Uh, when They came in 23-0. and they, You know, it's an event. They're an event now. Every 11-year-old kid. Every adult loves watching Steph Curry at this point. He's the, the, most, uh, the biggest name in probably professional sports right now. The, the most fun thing going on is the Warriors. And uh, he could not have treated kids better. It was really refreshing to see a guy of that magnitude stopping after his warm-up, which everybody watches, and going down the edge of the tunnel and just signing autographs and engaging the kids and uh, just being a nice, normal, approachable person, that was really cool to see. So I don't know Steph Curry at all, but uh, he's right there at the top of my list among guys I've been impressed by.
0: Very, very nice. He is a sports media columnist for the Boston Globe and Boston.com, Chad Finn. You can follow him on Twitter at Globe Chad Finn. Good luck the rest of the season with the basketball and your daughter's team. Mr. Finn, thank you for being <laughs> on the Red Ticket Blues podcast.
1: And the Celtics, too. I'm the 51.
0: <laughs> Thanks a lot, man.
1: Thank you. Very
0: fun. And I want to personally thank Mr. Chad Finn for coming on. He was an excellent guest. He's an excellent writer, and you should definitely follow him on Twitter. Excellence abound for Mr. Finn. Remember, you can listen to this podcast and every other podcast I've ever done ever on iTunes, TuneIn Radio, Stitcher, YouTube, and follow me on t- on uh, Twitter. That's the, that's the, that's the venue at Red Ticket Blues and at Brian Buck thirteen. Go to the website, redticketblues.com, like the show on Facebook, and if you really love the podcast, well, you're going to subscribe to it so you don't miss an episode, and you're going to give it a rating and review if you haven't done so already. So, enjoy the rest of your day with all that being said. I am out of here.